The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Hey, good morning, church. Um, if you will join me, we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 6 this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to be taking a break from walking through Ephesians. We're going to talk about family discipleship this morning. Um, as you're turning there, when I was a senior in high school, I recognized that God had put a calling on my life to go into youth ministry. Um, I realized that I had an uncanny and undeniable love of Mountain Dew and pizza. I recognized that it didn't have any effect on me as I continued to keep my same small shape, even though I had way too much Mountain Dew and pizza. And I love Jesus. And so I thought I had checked the three boxes required to go into youth ministry. So I graduated from high school in West Virginia and followed God's call on my life to attend North Greenville University here in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, I moved down here, and in my second semester of my freshman year, I took my first youth ministry class, Intro to Youth Ministry. In that class, I not only met the professor who would have one of the biggest influences on my life that I still admire very much to this day, but I was very much changed in my understanding of student ministry. So a couple classes in, he posed this question to us. Who are you ministering to in youth ministry? Who are you primary, primarily focusing upon? Who should you be thinking about most when you are in student ministry, when you're a youth pastor at a church? Who should you be thinking about? Very quickly, many people in the class answered, well, obviously the youth. I mean, it's called youth ministry after all. So many boldly answered that. But what we quickly realized is that is the wrong answer. The student ministry is not primarily a ministry to students. It's primarily a ministry to parents. And in order to have a successful student ministry in the way that God commands us to minister to the family, it is my priority and my responsibility as a student pastor, especially here as a student pastor at Abner Creek Baptist Church, to primarily minister to families and to parents. Um, It may say student minister in my job description. That's because I spend a large majority of time working with students. But my ministry is primarily to students. The reality is... That youth ministry was not constructive babysitting, where students are dropped off for a couple hours a week. You get to play Chubby Bunny, where you put marshmallows in your mouth and try to say Chubby Bunny. You get to drink as much Mountain Dew and pizza as you like, and you talk a little bit about Jesus in between. The reality is that God has called me to equip you, church, you, family, in the process of family discipleship and to teach kids the character of God and the gospel. So this morning, as we take a brief pause from examining the roles of husbands and wives, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to give you the scriptural mandate for family discipleship. And what I really want to make clear to you as a church this morning is this. I want to show you the necessity of family discipleship within the church. Now, there's a very particular reason why I've worded it that way. Uh, Number one, family discipleship is crucial to teach our children the gospel, but this cannot happen apart from the context of the church. And by nature of that, that means that the church must be involved in family discipleship. So the sermon this morning is not just limited to anyone who has a family or is part of a family, but it requires all of us as a church family to rally around our families, to encourage them, and to help them minister to their kids. So my game plan this morning for arguing this to you is very simple. First, we're going to examine what is called the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. We're going to look at that. We're going to look at what God intended uh, in these verses as Moses explained it to the original audience. We're going to look at the context and look at the content of what, are, what is in these verses. After that, we're going to look at why this matters. 
Why does this matter to us? And how does this Old Testament passage, why should we care about that today? And finally, I'm going to ask the question, how can we be obedient? Um, I want to give you very practical advice, I believe. Um, It's not exhaustive, but on how we can implement and be obedient to the Shema in our lives as parents and as a church family. So, without any further ado, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house, and on your gates." Now, the context of this is we're in the book of Deuteronomy this morning, and this is Moses' farewell address to the nation of Israel. To catch you up on the context of what's going on, after God had rescued Israel from Egypt in the Exodus, remember the parting of the Red Sea? I often think of the prince of Egypt when I think about the Exodus. God established his covenant with them. We see this namely in the giving of the Ten Commandments. God outlines how Israel was to love him and how the covenant relationship with him would be established. He gives them the law, makes the covenant, and he brings them to the promised land. In the book of Numbers chapter 13 and 14, we see that under Moses' leadership, the Israelites and Moses see fit to send 12 spies into the promised land to scout out the land and to see what they were getting into. But in Numbers 14, the 12 spies return and only two of them give a positive report saying that God could give them the land as God had promised. The other 10 rebelled against God and the nation followed those 10 as they were afraid of the stature of the people in the land and were scared that God wasn't going to give them the land. So Numbers 14, Israel rebelled and refused to take the promised land. God pronounced judgment upon them and he said that they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years while that generation died out and he would raise up their children to follow the leadership of Joshua and to take over the land. So only Caleb and Joshua lived, and 40 years later, we see Moses addressing this generation that God has raised up. Moses knew that he wouldn't enter the promised land with this generation, but that Joshua would lead them in to take over the land. And before going into the land, Moses kind of stops everyone and gives his final words, his last words before they go in to take the promise that God had given to them. In the first five chapters of Deuteronomy, this is what we see. It's broken down into two parts. First, Moses recounts the wandering in the wilderness. He reminds this next generation of all of the things that their parents had done, and it's anchored in the Exodus, in God's salvation for the nation of Israel through the Exodus, and how God graciously kept His covenant despite Israel constantly rebelling against Him. So it's rooted in the Exodus and God's faithfulness in that, but God's faithfulness in that God took care of these people as they wandered through the wilderness, providing food, shelter, everything that they needed to survive. As they move forward, Moses reminds them to learn from their parents, to learn from the generation before them, and to trust the Lord, to trust His promises, and to trust His faithfulness. So Moses recounts the wandering in the wilderness, and then he transitions to recounting the law. This is why the Ten Commandments are given again in Deuteronomy chapter 5, as well as in Exodus. Moses is reminding them of the law and the way that God defined for Israel's relationship with God to work. So this is the faithful God who established how to walk in a right relationship with him through the law. Moses reminds the people of the law. 
And the law revealed the character of God. So not only was Moses reminding the Israelites of the character of God and his faithfulness to their parents, but he was also reminding them of the character of God through the Ten Commandments and the law. See, in the law, we see what God expects of us. These are the things that God finds to be good, true, and what he expects of his people. That's why the law is so important. And so in Moses recounting the law, he says, remember the character of God. But now we get to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and Moses is going to say, listen, here's the greatest commandment. And this is where things get interesting. So let's look at our verses this morning, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. After recounting the law, Moses transitions into this section of the law where he begins with the Hebrew word Shema. That's where we get the name for this section. Now, what's important to know about the Hebrew word Shema is it's our word, listen. But whereas in our culture, our context, and the English language, listen can mean to hear something, and that's about it. In Hebrew, it was understood that obedience would follow the hearing of what came next. So as Moses said, listen, or Shema, it was understood that the Israelites wouldn't just hear this, but would live obediently to it. In essence, to hear without practicing was not to hear at all. They didn't put into practice what Moses told them to listen to. They didn't actually listen in the first place. So Moses says, listen and obey this. In essence, what he's getting to, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He says, listen and obey this Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is unique. He is the one and the only. And he is worthy of all of your love. Moses is clarifying the first commandment. Yahweh and Yahweh alone deserves everything. He deserves all of our love. Jesus affirms that this is the greatest commandment in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three synoptic gospel writers see fit to include an instance where Jesus affirms that this is the greatest commandment. Jesus goes so far as to say that every other commandment uh, hangs on this one. Every other law that God gives hangs on this. Love the Lord your God with everything. So to love... God is to follow the law because it clarifies the way in which we love God and the way in which the Israelites were to love God. So our heart, our soul, and all of our might encompasses the whole person. And Moses says, listen and obey this. The Lord your God, Yahweh, is unique, worthy of praise, and he is worthy of all of your love, of your entire life, all that you are. He alone is worthy of it. So listen and obey this. In verses 6 through 9, Moses is going to give practical instruction of how to apply it. First, he says, it should be on one's heart. Verse 6, and these words I command you today shall be on your heart. The Jewish audience would have understood this part of the Shema to understand something like it should be always on your mind. Think about for us, when you first fall in love with someone, when you see them and you just can't get enough of that special person, they're always on your mind, you can't stop thinking about them in the same way Yahweh should be to the Israelites. Uh, David, King David would say it this way in Psalm chapter 19. Listen to how he describes the law. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinance of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them there is an abundant reward. 
Now, in reading this, I thought about it for a second, and I realized how unique it is that David describes the law in this way. Because if we're honest, how many of us would take the Ten Commandments, and as we fall asleep at night, we go, man, these Ten Commandments are so good. I just can't get enough of them. They're just bright and radiant. I just love the Ten Commandments. Oh, man, you shall not covet. Oh, that just warms my heart. How does David get to that kind of feeling over the law? It's because he understands the character of the God it reveals. He understands the character of Yahweh, and it drives him to love what Yahweh, what God has revealed about himself. In verse 7, we see the instruction to repeat it to your children. Now, the idea here should be comforting to you as parents, because the idea isn't that they're taught, received, and you move on. The idea here and the connotation is that it's like an engraver of a monument carefully engraving something into a slab of granite. It takes precision and time. It doesn't happen overnight. It's slow. It's sometimes painstaking. It's very careful. It's a process. Listen, parents, it doesn't happen overnight. Now, before I go even farther, may you find rest in this, that the teaching of the gospel to your children doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. It's painstaking. It's like engraving a monument. Uh, For me, when I think about engraving something, I think about Mount Rushmore. I've never been there before, but I've seen many pictures. I don't think anyone goes up to Mount Rushmore and looks at those faces edged into the cliffside and goes, man, that's incredible. They built it in the night. It just doesn't work like that. And that's the same type of idea that's going on in verse 7 here. It's a careful etching of the truths of who God is and of his law into the hearts of the children. Next, Moses uses examples to describe how the law, summarized in loving God, should be on our minds. He says in verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. It is ever on your mind. The overflow of the law comes out in everything. The idea is to have it on our hearts that we're so desiring God and who He is and so desire to teach our children. It just comes out at every moment. There's not a time limit on it. Moses here isn't saying, you shall love the Lord your God. Teach it to your children at dinner time. Teach it to your children who are eating some pancakes around the breakfast table. He's saying, it shall always be on your mind. Take advantage of those opportunities. In verses 8 and 9, Moses gives two more ways that this should apply. That the law should be on our heads and on our hands. We're going to talk in a moment about how the Pharisees took this quite literally. But the way that I understand this to be, that I think there's support in Scripture for is that it should be on our minds, we should be thinking about it, and on our hands, and that it is the motivation for everything that we do. It makes a difference in how we act and the way that we respond to things. So, not only in our minds, but in our actions. So what's interesting in this passage is how God ordains and establishes the family as the primary means for the knowledge of Him to move forward from generation to generation. He establishes the family unit as the primary means of discipleship for the children. It was up to each generation to pass along the truth of the character of God as seen in the law and to teach future generations to love Him. If you go throughout the Old Testament, and especially if you look at books like First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, where it's recorded what happens between the generations of rulers in Israel, what you see is when Israel rebels, there's an absence of the passing on of the law of God. It gets so bad that the law is actually covered up, and one of the kings later on is surprised to find the book of the law and leads the nation to repent because they had strayed so far they hadn't even read the law in years because no one passed it on from generation to generation. This is the way that God has established and I'm going to make the argument that this is the way that the gospel moves forward as well. So 
how does this Old Testament practice apply to the church? I'm glad you asked that because that's where we're going to go next. Why does this matter? How does this apply to us? Um, As I said before, Jesus affirmed that this is the greatest commandment in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. And this holds true uh, for us then, especially since Jesus spoke this. One commentator I read was quick to point out how Jesus' affirmation of this passage displays this truth. That the law's purpose was to point people to Jesus. So when asked, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? There's nothing else I need to know from the Old Testament. Just one thing. What would it be? Love the Lord your God, Jesus said. Because ultimately, it points us to salvation in Jesus. So it's affirmed. It's moved forward. Jesus said this is the greatest commandment for us to obey. And as I studied, I realized that this is the most beautiful answer Jesus could give. Because it guards us against two extremes. The first extreme it guards us against is legalism. So in Jesus' day, it was really common for Pharisees to wear something called phylacteries. Now, phylacteries are really interesting. And because of Good News Club, I actually had an opportunity to wear a phylactery once. It was actually a really entertaining day. So in essence, what they were, were they were a black box made of wood with a strap. And the Pharisees, to display their righteousness, and I mean, after all, God did say it shall be written on your head, would take the Shema, write it on a piece of paper, put it in a box, and wrap it around their heads so that they would be obedient to God. I mean, they're, they're not wrong, I guess, but I mean, the essence is they made a command out of loving God. They tried to make it this checkbox that they could fulfill. Not only that, they would have a phylactery on their wrist. So when I wore a phylactery to make a point at Good News Club, I remember walking in and we were surrounded by like first to fourth graders. There were like 80 of them. And they're all looking at me like I was crazy because I had this black box on my head. And I made it better by pretending I wasn't wearing one so they were just really confused. But I think about that moment as those first to fourth graders are looking at me with a silly black box on my head. And it just makes me wonder how silly these Pharisees looked. How silly these Pharisees looked with a phylactery on their head trying to count one more law as accomplished so they could try to earn their righteousness so they could stand before God and say, listen, Moses said to wear the law on our heads. And we did it. Look at us. I mean, aren't we looking good right now? That's what the Pharisees accomplished. And the reason why Jesus using this to love God with everything as the greatest command, why it guards us against legalism, is because the Pharisees missed it. They missed it. They skipped over the love God part and went straight to Write the scripture on your head and on your hands. They missed it. The reality is that loving God, while it is clarified by the law, loving God isn't a checkbox that's as easy to check off as taping a box to your head. And if we think that's limited to the New Testament age, well, let's talk about today's age. In 2005, Christian Smith and a team of researchers surveyed America's youth to help understand the landscape of religion among teens. Now, I recognize we're looking at about 13 years ago. This research is a little bit dated, but the reality of what was coming up in teens in 2005 is now with our young adults. And what he found incredibly clear among the thousands of teenagers that he surveyed in 2005 was that they had not adopted Christianity, but adopted a belief system that he called moral therapeutic deism. Now, it's important for us to know about this. It's a scary-sounding term, but in essence, what moral therapeutic deism boils down to is this. There's a God who created and ordered the world and watches over it, expecting people to act good. As long as you act good, God will be happy. That's the belief that was taught to teens that they had adopted. 
They understood that God had created everything, but they thought that God was absent from the creation, just looking over it, making sure everything's working well. He's acting like a manager. And if you act good, you get a good thumbs up from the big guy and you're ready to go. But that's not the reality of what's going on. And in fact, that's the legalism of today's age. That's what it's boiled down to. When you remove love the Lord your God, skip over that and move straight to moralism or to the Ten Commandments and try to check boxes off, you end up with moral therapeutic deism. There's a God who watches over us, and as long as we act good, we should be all right. But that's not the reality of what we see in the Bible. This is what happens when we teach legalism without teaching to love God. So Jesus answered, to love God is the greatest commandment is gracious because it guards us against legalism. But it also guards us against lawlessness. At the same time, Jesus was clarifying that God is holy and distinct and deserves to be loved in the way that he defines and desires as we see in the law that he fulfilled. So think about it this way. Let's say Jesus gives the greatest command and he says, love God with everything. Let's say even farther back, Moses gives this command, but he never gave the law with it. So the Israelites' next question is like, all right, that's cool. We want to love God. How? And Moses would just be like, well, I don't know. Just do it. That's what would happen if there wasn't the law. If there wasn't a clarifying way to determine the character of God and what he expects of us. The reality is that the law shows us our need for Jesus ultimately. But it also clarifies the character of God. So it does two things. It shows us God's standards, his character, what he expects. But when we look in the law as sinful human beings, we look in it as a mirror and we recognize that we can't keep the law. Remember, the Pharisees were trying so hard to earn their own righteousness. But the argument I would make to you is even if we boiled everything down to the Ten Commandments, which there's no doubt in my mind, not a single one of us can even keep the Ten Commandments. Even if it were possible to keep all Ten Commandments, you would be no more saved than if you hadn't kept them because you're still trusting in your own means for salvation. And sin is rebelling against God and going our own way. And it's not just a reality that we sin and so we're sinful people. It's a reality that we're sinners and that's why we sin. It's a heart issue. If you don't believe me, parents, I'm sure it'd be really easy to make this argument. You don't have to teach a child to be bad. It just happens. I realize this as I work uh, for a company that teaches soccer to little kids. So a couple years ago, um, I went up to Buddy Hall and I heard that he was hiring and I needed a job. I said, Buddy... What do you do? I'd love to have a job. And he said, well, I teach kids soccer. And I thought, great. I'm going to get to work with elementary schoolers. I'm going to get to teach them soccer. Little did I know he met two to four-year-olds. So we're teaching two to four-year-olds soccer, and it's a blast. And no two sessions are the same. It's incredible. But one of the things I quickly learned with those young kids is that they like to do the opposite sometimes of what you say. So, for an example, one activity we have to do is uh, take the kids. We set up cones, and we walk around the cones to get the hang of avoiding the cones. So that later we could take a soccer ball between them. So my one rule for this game is don't touch the cones. That's it. Just, just don't touch it. You just got to walk around them. There's plenty of room. You can do it. We get about four steps in, and I look back, and I always, always see one kid look at me and look at the cone. And then look at me and look at the cone. And suddenly one finger comes out, and he gets really close to that cone, and he goes, touch because he wants to see what I'm going to do. Now, what was my one command? Don't touch the cone. But immediately, no one had to teach those kids to push the limits to touch the cone. I did not go up to them and say, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to tell you not to touch the cone. I want you to touch it. That's what we're going to learn. We're going to learn disobedience today. No, it's wired within them, and it's cute, and it's adorable, but it's a picture 
of a reality that's true for all of us, that we are born sinners separated from God. The law reveals this. It's just like when I say don't touch the cones, take the Ten Commandments, for example. Don't lie, don't murder, don't steal. Those things, we see them, suddenly we're aware of them, and the temptation is to go our own way and to lie, to give false witness. I'm not boiling this down just to these commands for any other reason than for you to see your need for Jesus. Your need for Jesus. But here's the beauty of it. When we repent of our sins, when we turn away from our sins and trust Jesus to save us, He not only forgives us, not only is His perfect fulfillment of the law counted to us, but we are actually empowered to keep His commands. The good news of Jesus actually fulfills our ability and empowers us to keep this command to love the Lord your God with all that you are. Church, here's why this matters. Christ's death redefined everything. It redefined everything, but God has charged us with the task of passing along the gospel to our kids. And when I say our kids, parents, I want you to think about your kids. But church, I also want you to think about the kids, the students that God has brought to us as a church. They are our kids. We have been charged with the task of passing the gospel along to them. This charge is primarily to the family, but it requires the entire church. It requires the entire church. It cannot be done outside the context of the church. So, how do we do this? And I'm glad you asked. You're asking the right questions today. How can we be obedient? Um, Here's where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. And I can understand that there can be a little hesitancy as I bring up ways to do family discipleship. As I was praying, as I was thinking of you, uh, as I prepared the sermon, I recognized that the last thing you need as parents is another thing on your to-do list. I recognize that. Uh, So my goal this morning is this, before I go any farther. My goal is not to bring condemnation upon you as parents, as a church. My goal is not to bring upon you that you failed and that you're bad parents, because I don't believe that's true. My goal is to preach grace, to give you freedom, and to help you breathe and rest in Christ. So everything, every tip, uh, every way that we can apply this passage breaks down to two categories. They cannot be separated from one another. The first is rest, and the first is teach. I believe that this is how Moses has outlined this passage of Scripture. I believe this is how God has revealed it to us. I believe that in verses 4 and 5, when Moses says, Listen and obey, love the Lord your God with everything, I believe that attached to that, the best way to love God, one of the best ways we can love God is to rest and to rely on Him for everything and to not trust ourselves. But then also Moses gives practical advice on how this plays out in the life of the family. And I believe that's where the teaching section comes in. So let's talk about resting first. Parents, I know you're busy. I understand that some days it is a success to do the dishes and to keep up with the laundry. And I understand that some days you do the dishes, you do the laundry, you turn around, you pat yourself on the back, rightfully so because you've accomplished it, and turn back around to a full sink and a full hamper. I understand that some days you barely get your kids to school on time. Maybe you get done your errands for the day and you look down to realize you're 20 minutes late to picking up your kids and you're rushing to pick them up. You get home, sit down for five minutes only to realize, oh wait, we're late for practice and we need to get there too. And it feels like you can barely stay afloat. And that's why the first thing I want to say before I say anything else, the primary way that family discipleship is accomplished is by resting in the Lord. It's by resting in the Lord. The best way to teach your kids the gospel is to have your affection so stirred for Jesus that it comes out in everything that you do. The best way to pass on the gospel is to have your affection so stirred for Jesus 
That comes out in everything that you do. Remember David in Psalm 19 described the law of the Lord as something beautiful as I read earlier. He simply could not get enough of it. He couldn't. Now as a student pastor, uh, one of the things I've realized, especially with the rise of social media, and students are not unfamiliar to me saying this, is that we're all evangelists to something already. Uh, One of the problems that we see is we engage church culture and encourage people to evangelize. The issue isn't that they're not evangelists. The issue is that we're not already telling the good news of something. Is that we haven't prioritized the good news of the gospel. So, for example, if you take your Facebook timelines, everyone is eager to share about the great new thing they've seen or experienced. They want to share it on their timeline. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. I think it just reveals that we're wired to worship. Now, for me, I realized it very clearly, something that happened recently to my life, and I believe that this is a millennial problem through and through. Uh, recently, um, I love technology, and I decided to switch to the dark side from iPhone to Android when it comes to smartphones. So if you're unfamiliar, in the cell phone, smartphone market, the two primary means, and like Ethan's already like in pain because I said that, the primary two types of phones are your Apple phones, your iPhones, and your Android, which is like everything else is a different running system. iPhone people have this nice ivory tower they sit. I'm just kidding. So iPhone people have a very defined way of the way that they like to do things. And if you're on iPhone, like you're team iPhone. If you're not iPhone, you're team Android. You look down upon sometimes. And you're completely different. Now, I switched. And this was huge for me because I'm a millennial. I like my phone. It's tough, okay? You may not understand it, but just understand it's tough. And what I found myself doing is I wanted people... Like, I'm sitting there in my mind, and like, I pull out my new phone, and I'm like, someone ask me about it. Like, I just want to tell you about Android. Like, I want to tell you about all the reasons why I switched from the ivory tower Apple people who think they're so cool, and why I'm an Android user now. And what I realized is I'm sitting there excited to tell them about all the features, the camera, whatever else on my phone. And it was just natural. I didn't have to just work myself up for it. And if I was that excited to tell about my Android phone... Why am I not that excited to share about the gospel? Why am I sitting in my seat going, just ask me about my phone. I just can't wait to tell you about it. And not going, ask me about my Savior. Ask me about what he's done for me. Listen, we're all evangelists to something. We're all evangelists to something. Parents, why not have your affection so stirred for the Lord that you're just overwhelmed with love for him and it comes out in all that you do? So that's why you need to start with keeping the first thing first. Seek to abide with Jesus daily. If you hear nothing else from the sermon, parents, as you are in the trenches raising your kids, make it your utmost priority to abide with Jesus first. Abide with Jesus first. Everything else will fall in line when you abide with Jesus first. It will begin to overflow into everything else. And think about this. Think about how God's not heaping condemnation upon you as parents. How he's wired all of us as believers to have it our top priority to love God most and to abide with Christ. Think about how gracious of God it is that when we abide with him, when we spend time with him, then it overflows into everything else and he actually conforms us into the image of Christ. God could have established that if we do X, Y, and Z, if we turn around three times, hop four times, run two marathons, then we can be more like Jesus. But instead he says, abide with me. Love me above all else. And he has placed his spirit within us to conform us into the image of Christ. That's why for all of us, abiding with Jesus should be our top priority. And parents, this is true for you too. As you are in the trenches trying to juggle the million things that you've got going on, just seek to abide with Jesus first, that it overflows into everything else that you do. Now, church, the parents aren't alone in this. Maybe you don't have kids. Maybe you're at a stage of life where your kids have moved out, or you just don't have kids yet. 
Every week, church, we have the opportunity to not only display our affections for Jesus as we sing, as we give, and as we listen to the preaching of God's word, but we also have the opportunity to encourage some tired parents on Sundays, to encourage them, to remind them that what they're doing has eternal impact and that God is working through them every single day. This is a church-wide mission. The family can't do this on our own, so encourage and demonstrate the love of God and how you abide in Him. Sunday morning should be the culmination of everything throughout the week as you abide in God. It shouldn't be your charge up as you go throughout the week alone. It should be where we come together and we're reminded of the gospel, encouraged, and overflows from our time abiding with Christ and empowers us to go throughout the rest of the week. So church, take advantage of that and encourage parents today. And that's how we can rest in God. Abide with Jesus first. Make that your top priority. Rest in Him. Have your affection so stirred for Him it comes out in all that you do. So just seek to abide with Him. I believe that's the first part. Second is to teach. Um, This is going to break down in a couple ways. And I want to let you know of a couple things. Um, Preparing for this sermon, uh, I wanted to ask some parents that I felt were faithful in uh, teaching their kids. I wanted to talk to as many people as possible about some of the struggles that come from parenting. Because I understand, and one of the reasons why I was nervous to preach this morning, I don't have kids of my own. Um, So what I'm going to share with you, uh, I believe is biblically wise, but you may not find a command for these exact things in Scripture. But I believe that from the wisdom of parents who have sought to seek the Lord and have implemented these types of ideas themselves, I believe they'll be beneficial. Don't hear me give you a list of do's and don'ts. And don't separate this section out from resting in God first. But I just want to give you practical ways that you can engage your families and you can help uh, train them in the gospel. So the first way is to teach. And we're going to teach about God. First is to teach by reflecting the character of God. So the first thing we want to do is we want to teach about the character of God. Remember, I said that the law reflects God's standards and his character. And so I believe we need to teach by reflecting the character of God. Now here's the good news. God has wired you and created you in his image so that you can do exactly that. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, we see how God uh, created man in his image and gave this command. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. I would make the argument to you this morning that this is not only physical multiplications and bearing offspring, but also spiritual multiplication. I believe this is fulfilled in the making of disciples. And so this happens primarily as parents in the family unit. Being created in the image of God and being believers in Jesus Christ means that we can reflect the nature and the image of God to our children. That's a beautiful thing. Just by being a human being that God has created, you already have a head start on teaching on the character of God and reflecting His image. You can reflect the character of God in how you love. You can reflect the character of God in how you love your children. It's why God has chosen to reveal Himself as a loving Father to us. He's given that relationship of father and children as an example. And you can use that father-mother to your children, loving them well, to display a picture of God's love for us. You can also reflect the character of God in how you discipline as well. This is why we have standards Um, As I said before, Moses didn't give the command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that was the only command that was given. It was clarified. It was clarified. In the same way, we have standards. We show the character of God and the fact that God has standards as well. So in our own standards, we're going to reflect those. Here's one way this plays out. Parents, you set the priorities for your house. You set the priorities for your house. Make sure it's Jesus. 
Make sure it's Jesus. You live for and tell your kids what's important in life. And you're going to shape their lives. Make sure that your priority is Jesus. Here's another way this plays out. Be willing to admit when you're wrong and when you've messed up. Have an open line of communication where you can go to your kids when you mess up. Maybe you get really angry at a situation and you just fly off the cuff and you blow it. Be willing to come to your kids and to ask for forgiveness. You can reflect the character of God in humility and give them an opportunity not only to experience forgiveness, but to extend forgiveness as God extends forgiveness to us. So have an open line of communication. Be willing to admit when you're wrong. Church, again, as a body, I want to communicate this to you. We reflect the character of God as we rightfully, rightly care for our children and for our students. I I don't ever want you to think that student ministry is something separate from the church. I don't ever want you to think that my name is Matt Hall. I've been hired as a student pastor. I'll take care of the students. Y'all do your thing. That's not the truth. The truth is this is a church effort. We can reflect the character of God as a church by rightly caring for our kids and for our students. We can help parents in family discipleship. We can help in teaching the character of God. Next, we not only teach by reflecting the character of God, but by teaching about God. Now, most commonly, this happens simply by reading the Bible or having a family devotion. Now, when I talk about this, I want you to know that I have never, ever, ever, ever heard of a family who has a perfect family devotion. Never in my life have I heard of a family sitting down at 7.30 every evening and their kids sit beside the fire and sit down crisscross applesauce ready to receive the word of God and they look to their parents and say, we're ready mom and dad, we're ready to hear the word of the Lord and they have a nice half hour devotion every week. It doesn't happen and that should not be your goal because it's, it's not going to happen. This doesn't mean that it's perfect. This doesn't mean that you get your kids to sit crisscross applesauce and to receive the word of God. What this means is that you take every advantage. Maybe there's a time when your kids are kind of calm and you feel like you can enter a family devotion right then. Take advantage of it. It's about working in the rhythm of your week as you find time. If you're abiding in the Lord, if you're walking with Him, walking in His guidance, He's going to help you seize those opportunities. So as you're abiding and as you're going throughout your week, you see an opportunity, you seize it. That's what we're talking about. Maybe it's praying before bed. Maybe it's a bedtime story from Scripture rather than from another book. There's just two ways that maybe it'll work for your family. I'm just trying to give you ideas to think about that. Maybe those are a couple ways you can have family devotion. It's about taking advantage of teachable moments as well. We don't shy away from moments when difficult questions come up. Instead, we lean into them. And I know this is especially terrifying if you're the parent of a teenager. But you don't shy away from those moments when your kids ask questions. Lean into them. Use them as a teachable opportunity. Not only do we teach the Bible and an understanding of the Bible, but it also means, I also believe this means that we teach teens how to interpret the culture around them. We're doing a disservice to our kids and to our students if we keep them in a bubble, in a Christian bubble, and don't teach them how to understand the culture around them. They're not being set up well. One of the things that we're realizing in research that is coming out as I'm um, reading on it is that kids are not being secularized in college. The reality is that college is just bringing out the fact that they were secularized under their parents because their parents weren't engaging in family discipleship. College isn't the issue. College is bringing out what's in their hearts already. So teach students how to think. It's why Israel was given the law. 
not only to have a relationship with God, but to represent God to the world around them. In the New Testament, Jesus prays for all who would come to him in John chapter 17 that we would be in the world, but not of it. And there's a distinct difference there. It's about interpreting the culture around them. So I've thought of three ideas. These ideas, just going to take a step away for a moment. These ideas are just my ideas that I've seen as I've taught students. These are just ideas to get you thinking about what will work best for your family. But I just want to give you three ways that you can teach your kids to think about the things of God and to teach them how to think. That they're not just Bible drill champions, but they're people who love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. First, here's one idea. When your kids ask a question or when students ask a question, don't be Google. Don't be Google and give them an answer. Encourage them to look in the Word and help them research and find the answer on their own from the Word of God. I know it can be tempting because sometimes the questions are really easy and you just be like, hey, boom, here's your answer. Take the time to teach them how to research, how to find the answer on their own. Because here's the reality. If you're Google... If you just give an answer to your kids when they give it to you every time, the day's going to come when you're not around, and then how are they going to find the answer for it? They don't know how to think for themselves. So don't be Google. Teach them how to find an answer. Push them, press them on the issue. Sometimes play devil's advocate. We know that there are very, very, very many hot-button hot topics in our culture today. Sometimes maybe they ask a good question they have an answer for it. Press them by giving arguments that culture might give to it. While you're in a safe environment, while you're discipling them, help them understand the counter-arguments against it that they can be built up and learn to think through things on their own. That's one idea. Next, engage the culture by discussing worldview implications in movies and TV. Now, there's one thing I am saying and one thing I'm not saying. The one thing I'm not saying is I'm not saying that all movies and all TV are permissible if a parent is with them. I'm not saying that at all. I'm, I'm absolutely not saying that. But I'm saying that we need to teach the next generation... And you teach teens and kids how to interpret the things that are going on around them. Most often we see this in movies. So students, you know me. You know that I love Marvel movies. Love Marvel movies. I'm already losing my mind because Avengers is coming out in two weeks. It's going to be awesome. Waited 10 years for this. You've been hitting to it. Finally, it's happened. I love Marvel movies. That's a really easy connecting point to discuss some worldview implications because worldview implications come out in superhero movies a lot. I'm just giving one example that's kind of relevant and fresh in my mind. So I think about Black Panther. I saw Black Panther. It came out um, about a month ago now and it was an incredible superhero movie but I noticed as I watched it that it also gave a commentary on some things going on in the culture. Now, I'm not saying it was from a Christian worldview. It was even more unique as a superhero because it talks about an African culture made up called Wakanda and their culture, customs, and religion and stuff. I'm saying that, that things like this are connecting points where you can talk about how maybe this worldview is different and how it differs from Christianity, how we should understand it, how we should understand what's going on in culture, and how this movie is trying to make us think about culture. And this can happen in movies and in television. So I'm not saying unsupervised any movie is free. I'm saying... Why not take advantage of those things that God has given us in entertainment? That is one way that we can teach our kids to understand things. And the reality is, we can be scared of entertainment, or we can accept the fact that it's everywhere around us, and we can learn to understand it in a biblical worldview. Uh, my last idea is this. Um, make no question off limits. Make no question off limits. Um, a few months ago, we were walking through 1 Corinthians, and I was a little nervous as we got to a section on how Paul discusses divisions in the church and how the gospel informs sex and sexuality. The reality is that I realize that someone is speaking to your students and your kids about these things. It needs to be you. 
It needs to be you. Make yourself available so your kids can come to you and ask questions on those things, but also on anything. Allow it to be a safe place where maybe they don't understand what something means. They can come to you and they can ask that and you can have communication about that so that you can inform them, teach them to think from a biblical worldview instead of being so scared of the topic that you just run away from it and they never get an answer and it ends up being a weak point in their lives. Make an open line of communication. Be willing to answer any question and to have a safe space where they can say that without fear of getting in trouble. Make an open line of communication so they can learn from a biblical perspective. Those are just three ideas on how to teach students to think. Um, so let me close with this. Uh, I want to address three groups of people in the room tonight. Parents, I want to address you. I said tonight, but it's today. Uh, church, I want to address you. And students, I want to address you. Um, Pastor Scott, I want to thank you that I get to preach on this topic. Um, because this is very passionate. And this is something I want the entire church to know about. And I just want to take a moment while I've been blessed with this opportunity to preach. And parents, I want you to hear something from the pulpit that is very important to me. And I want you to understand this. You are not the enemy of student ministry. You are not the enemy of student ministry. I do not view you as the enemy of student ministry in any way, shape, or form. You are not the enemy. And I want to make sure you know that. And I also want you to know this. I am not the primary discipler of your students if they're in the student ministry. I'm not. You are. But my job is to make that as easy as possible for you. That's why we are a team. That's why we work together. That's why it is my goal to get resources into your hands so that you can engage in gospel conversations. You can stir your affections for the Lord. You can teach your kids and follow up with what I'm doing in the student ministry. The same I know is true for our children's ministry. I'm just speaking from student ministry because that's what I know. Parents, that's why I give take-home fill-in-the-blank notes that can go home with the students. I know sometimes you don't ever see them, but I just want to make you aware of them. That's why I give notes out every single week on what we're going through on Wednesday nights. So you can take that paper, you can read through it, understand what's going on, and follow up with it throughout the week. I just want to give you a resource. Maybe you don't know where to start. Those notes are a great place to start. But also there's this. I'm here for you. I'm here to help you. If I don't know the answer, I promise you I will find a way to get the answer for you or to get resources into your hands. I want to help. I want to be that helper. I am not against you. And in no way do you take the coolness away from the student ministry because I promise you I've probably already done that. All right? So you are not the enemy. You're not the enemy. You are teammates. We are a team. We work together. So please understand that. And may that encourage you. Church, there's one other thing I'm very passionate about. And sometimes I have to be careful because it gets under our skin. I praise God that I've never heard this at this church. I praise God for that. Students and kids are not the next generation of the church. They are the church right now. They are the church right now. Our students are not the next generation. They are the church now. There's a very big difference in that. They are acting members. And first, I want to thank you, church for including our students, for giving them opportunities to serve, and for not looking down on them in any way as they seek to serve the church. Thank you for that. But let's continue that atmosphere. In the same way that you would connect with and encourage an adult, do that for a teenager or a kid this week. Do that for a teenager or for a kid this week. Talk with them. Get to know them. Uh, all of the teens are probably like squirming their seats like, oh no. no. It's not scary. It's not as scary as it might be. And we grow stronger. And this task of family discipleship is easier and is accomplished more effectively when we unite as a church. And there's no lines between generations. So, same way you would talk to an adult or encourage them, seek a student out. Students, I see a couple of you. 
when we're looking around. Students, I want to talk to you for a second. Um, help, your pay, help your parents out by obeying the Lord and obeying them. When you obey your parents, you're obeying the Lord. And I want you to view obeying your parents in that way. But I also want you to know this. Cut your parents some slack. Sometimes they're going to mess up and they're going to blow it. Give them grace. They're learning how to parent. They're never going to be perfect at it. Give them grace, all right? Obey them, love them well, and give them grace. They mess up too. I believe and we practice these things, then family discipleship can be accomplished. And we continue to move forward with the gospel. Let's pray together this morning. God, thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and to see the truth that it reveals. God, I thank you that you have established a family unit as a means by which the gospel can move forward. God, I thank you that you not only call us to things, but you empower us with the ability to be obedient to those things. God, I pray that this morning, God, that you would encourage and strengthen any tired parents in the room. God, I pray that you would help them make their relationship with you their top priority. God, I pray that family discipleship would be effective. God, I ask that, that we as a church would raise up kids and students who can think for themselves and interpret the culture and engage that culture with the gospel. God, that we wouldn't be growing up different from the world and just scared and hidden inside of a bubble, but we would be missional, spreading the good news of the kingdom of God to those around us in all that we do. God, would today be a day, maybe a turning point for families who haven't been implementing this or maybe they're tired or they don't know where to go. God, I pray that this would give them traction and strength and you would empower them by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.